Today, they're a fait accompli, a triumph, an early manifestation of Shakespeare's genius. But there was a time, not that long ago, when all that was hanging by a thread. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. You likely think you know something about Shakespeare's sonnets. They're part of the canon. They're owed as much respect as many of his plays. And maybe you imagine that if you can scroll back through history, you'd find a similar level of knowledge and appreciation. If you did, though, you would likely be wrong. Professor Jane Kingsley Smith has taken the deepest dive into Shakespeare's sonnets in decades. And she's come up with an important new book that focuses on precisely how they've been received over the centuries. Her story winds through the publication of the 1609 Quarto Edition, which disappeared almost completely after it was published, and the better-selling Fake Edition that came out 10 years earlier, through all the other editions over the centuries, and all the discussion they fostered. The book tells us a lot about the low esteem the sonnets were held in for more than 150 years, about all the prominent writers who found them to be no better than average, maybe even below average. They also teach us how little the world of book promotion has changed between then and today, how the sonnets served largely as a marketing tie-in after Shakespeare became famous. In light of how we view the sonnets today, it's all really surprising. And it's why we've invited Professor Kingsley Smith in for a second time to tell us more. A note before we start, we recorded this podcast during the very early days of the coronavirus outbreak in the United States. If you hear anything in our audio quality that's less than what you've come to expect from us, we hope that you'll understand under the circumstances. We call this podcast Return to the Verses. Jane Kingsley-Smith is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The sonnets weren't in the first folio, which only had the plays. And the sonnets didn't really get much public attention until some three decades after Shakespeare's time. And I know this from your book. And this is when this publisher, John Benson, came out with a book called Poems, which was important for creating a reputation for the sonnets. So why did that book, Poems, create such a stir? Um, I think it's difficult to establish how much of a stir it caused, really. It may be that there was a sense of incompleteness around the Shakespeare canon, or he was aware of some poems and he thought, you know, I'll I'll put a collection together. Um, I mean, it is incredibly important, Benson's collection, because the quarto just seems to have disappeared So this was really how Shakespeare's sonnets would be read for at least 100 years. So he was riding a wave to cash in because you you write that he kind of went out of his way to make his book look like a kind of a first folio or parallel to it. And he has the same picture on the title page and it has some of the Johnson eulogy to Shakespeare in it. So what was he piggybacking? Yeah, I think so. I think he wants it to look authentic. He wants it to have some status. So he, he uses the same printer, Thomas Coates, as had printed the second folio of 1632. So it, it does look like a kind of serious undertaking. You know, modern critics have been incredibly dismissive of Benson. I think there's a kind of turn back on that now and his reputation has been reestablished. Because, you know, this was 
a, a really important moment in Shakespeare publishing, really. But the poems in Benson's book aren't all Shakespeare, right? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you've got, I think it's 146 sonnets, and then you've got all of the Passionate Pilgrim, and that's the 1612, the, the much expanded version, which had lots of Hayward's Trojan poems in as well. And then it's got a section of poems by Herrick and Milton and Strode, you know, which are obviously not by Shakespeare because he says that they're not. So although it, it has by Will Shakespeare Gent on the title page, it's obviously a kind of miscellany. And and was Benson trying to make it seem like he had just discovered these Shakespeare poems 30 years after Shakespeare's time to, to kind of uh, fluff, <laughs> fluff, <laughs> fluff up the, <laughs> the audience? Yes, definitely. I mean, there's a, you know, evidence suggests that he had a copy of the quarto, the 1609 quarto in front of him, and he's working from that. But the preface is incredibly disingenuous and is suggesting that these are poems which were only in their infancy when Shakespeare died. So Shakespeare never had a chance to publish them and stamp his name on them, which obviously Benson knows isn't true because he's looking at a publication from Shakespeare's own lifetime full of sonnets. But yeah, he's clearly trying to generate a bit more buzz around them. And also, I think he's probably copying some of Hemings and Condell's dedication to the first folio, where they talk as well about how Shakespeare had died too soon and kind of left the plays as orphans and, and they need a guardian. Right. And you say he talks about the sonnets as uh, he, he argues for their purity and their authenticity. Mm. And it really, he's mm. just really making this case. But how pure were they, though? I mean, did, did he... Altered or edit them? Yes, I mean, he's notorious for doing that. So, you know, and in lots of fascinating ways. So he gives them titles. The sonnet form is not very popular for his audience by this point. So he merges some of them together. Um, Most of them are 42-line poems. Um, He still indents the couplets, interestingly, but they become longer units. Um, There is some changing of the pronouns, from sweet boy to sweet love. So there's a suggestion that he's kind of heterosexualizing some of them, although it's not very extensive, so it, it's not a kind of whitewashing. But yes, it, it's a, a fairly major intervention. And then, of course, amongst the sonnets are passionate pilgrim lyrics, which aren't by Shakespeare. So yes, okay, a claim so, of purity. So he tinkered. <laughs> well, did his tinkering change? Uh, I mean, hurt or improve the poems? Well, this is a really interesting question. I mean, he obviously thought he was making them more accessible. Um, and in his preface, he, he makes this wonderful claim that in your perusal, you shall find them serene, clear and elegantly plain. Such gentle strains as shall recreate and not perplex your brain. No intricate or cloudy stuff to puzzle intellect, but perfect eloquence. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, I don't think anyone has ever thought that that was true of the sonnets, that, you know, that they're not going to perplex your brain or you'll find them serene or clear. Yeah. So it's a, a fabulous kind of rewriting of, of their reputation already. And that's one of the reasons why Benson's so important, because it represents a kind of literary criticism, a critical response to the sonnets and what 
people already think about than perhaps. Now, skipping ahead to the 18th century, Shakespeare begins to emerge as the, as you put it, the preeminent English dramatist and the ultimate literary icon. And we just recently mm-hmm. did a whole podcast about David Garrick's Jubilee uh, that looked at some oh, of yeah. the reasons why this happened. But how do the sonnets fit into the coronation of Shakespeare, if, if they do fit in at all? Yeah, I mean, initially, it doesn't look very promising. So, you know, I've, I've looked a little bit at Garrick's Jubilee, and you would hope to find some references to sonnets or some performance of sonnets, but there's really nothing. And, you know, when you're looking at the revival of Shakespeare on the stage, and I talk a bit in the book about the Shakespeare Ladies Club, you know, were really driving Shakespeare um, into the repertoire. Um, the and, Shakespeare Ladies Club? yes. Yes. Yeah. T- ex- explain that. Tell us more. <laughs> I mean, I'm by no means an expert on this. You need to read Fiona Ritchie's book, Women in the 18th Century. But it seems to be a collection of quite aristocratic women who became quite powerful patrons of Shakespeare, obviously posthumously, and argued for more of his plays to be put on in the theatres and also you know, discussed the plays. And, and there's a relationship with actresses taking on particular Shakespeare roles and bringing those to prominence. So it seems as if women were particularly instrumental in making the dramatic canon more accessible and, and more kind of esteemed, but that doesn't seem to have had any effect on the sonnets. Women, It wasn't that they didn't like the sonnets, it was just that they were focused on the plays? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, obviously everybody's focused on the plays at this point, irrespective right. of gender, but it does seem that women didn't particularly like them, perhaps. Um, There's a quote by Anna Seward, you know, and she is writing sonnets in the 18th century. And she talks about them being quibbling. And quibbling means puns or wordplay. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, She complains about stiff infelicity of expression, the quaintness quibbling and utter want of harmonious flow. And she's talking about pretty much all poetry from Chaucer to Spencer. But she says that this is particularly true of Shakespeare's poems. She says the detached poems of our immortal Shakespeare are strongly tinctured with them. Huh. So she doesn't like the, it sounds like the poetry, the style, the technique. Or was it that they were too lewd? Um, I don't think it's to do with the subject matter particularly. I think at this point it's more the Samuel Johnson hatred of puns, quibbling is seen as a bit lower class. I think it's a bit juvenile, quaintness, obscurity, and also want of harmonious flow. The ideal sonnet form at this time is the Miltonic or Italian sonnet, you know, where you have um, the octave and the sestet and you have fewer but more repeated rhyming sounds than the Shakespearean sonnet, which is, you know, quatrains and a couplet. So this sense that... Milton is the classical Italianate sonnet that you should all aspire to write, and Shakespeare's are just a, le- a bit less intellectual. It's easier, potentially, to write a Shakespeare sonnet. So is this how most people thought of, of Shakespeare's sonnets, that they just weren't that good? <laughs> yeah, I think people was, from the little criticism we still have, and Wordsworth is making this point, you know, around the turn of the century, that this idea of them being difficult and obscure and, you know, potentially, I suppose, embarrassing and that their attitude towards language is, um, again, kind of 
overly complicated and, you know, just this discomfort with quibbling just does seem to have kind of ruined their pleasure. Well, Nicholas Rowe uh, published a new Mm. edition of Shakespeare's Complete Works in 1709 that Mm -hmm. seemed to make them a lot more approachable. He brings out the six volumes that are small enough that you can actually pick them up as opposed to that one Mm. huge, you know, folio volume. And he also partially modernizes the text and he has engravings of key moments in performance and their list of characters for the first time. So he's really kind of, you know, an idiot guide to that, (laughs) which is wonderful. We can all use them. Um, uh, So the plays get a huge boost. But does he include any of the sonnets? No, and Nicholas Rowe is kind of fascinating in this context because there's a bit in, I think it's a dedication to the reader, where he says that lately it has come to his attention that there's a book of poems, but as he hasn't had time to make a judgment about it, he's not going to include them. And there's a kind (laughs) of... (laughs) There's a kind of whiff of that anxiety about authenticity again, though. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what he says. He says, I can't, as I can't pretend to have made a judgment on them. That word pretend, I think, is quite revealing. There's a kind of, are these really by Shakespeare? I'm not going to publish them just in case. Right. And this this is an ongoing discussion over whether Shakespeare actually yeah. wrote these poems. Um, but, but one book you write gives support that came out the year after Nicholas Rowe's book, Remarks on the Poems mm. of Shakespeare by Charles Gildon. So uh, explain Gildan to us, and how does Gildan damage the reputation of the sonnets? Well, Gildan um, brings out what he calls Volume the Seventh, which is an edition of the poems. So it includes narrative poems, and it also includes Benson. And he's obviously marketing this as an add-on or a supplement to Nicholas Rowe. So it's like he's read this challenge in Rowe's preface and thought, well, you know, I'm, I, I believe these are by Shakespeare, so I'm going to bring them out. So he kind of starts a, a critical debate about the poems, which had never existed before, really. There's very little critical engagement with them. And starts, he provides a glossary, so the poems will be easier for you to read and understand. And he makes connections between the poems and the plays a little bit, in many ways anticipating what Malone would do at the end of the century, but doing it much earlier than I think people often imagine. And and so how does he give ballast to the doubters? Um, <laughs> I mean, he makes his own fairly dubious claims. You know, he says things like, there's not a single poem in this collection that doesn't bear the stamp of its author. And again, that's just obviously not true because Benson is printing poems by Herrick and Milton and there are poems, there are elegies to Shakespeare, so he can't possibly have written his own elegies. So, it, you know, there's a lot of exaggeration. But he also you know, makes a point about Rowe and says, you know, Rowe is printing all these apocryphal plays. So, you know, should we be trusting his judgment? Um, So he's really trying to kind of undermine Roe rather than provide much positive evidence for their authenticity. Well, what does Gilden think of them as poems? Um, Yeah, he thinks that there are some fine phrases. He thinks that they're a little bit too passionate. Um, He's not very keen on, again, kind of puns or witticisms. Um, So he finds them a little bit contrived. But, um, you know, still thinks that they're worth reading and worth talking about. And that, you know, that's quite a a rare thing at this point. 
Well, there's not only the Gildan book. There's also this edition by Bernard Lintot. And we talked about Lintot yeah. a little bit the last time you were on the, the podcast. He's mm. he's that guy who published the sonnets, but he seems to be kind of negligent. <laughs> you, 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 say, you say there's <laughs> yes. clear evidence that he never read them. I think it's very unlikely that he did read them. Because in this composite volume that he produced in 1711, he's essentially reprinted two of the poems twice. Because you can read 138 and 144 in The Passionate Pilgrim, and then you can read them again in the quarto sequence. So you'd think as an editor, you might kind of That's just sloppy. point that out. or <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You might do something with that. But he doesn't because he doesn't really care about them particularly, I don't think. Okay, so what is the upshot of, of these Lintot and Gildan editions? I mean, is this when the sonnets finally get included in a complete works by major publishers? Yes, they start to. Gildan is the one who has the influence. So when Pope produces his famous works of Shakespeare, there are still no poems in there. But George Sewell in 1725 produces the poems of Shakespeare, and he uses Gildan's edition. And then the odd works will start to incorporate them. But there's still a huge amount of time in the 1730s, 40s, 50s, where it, it's just fine not to include sonnets in the works. They don't. They still haven't really found their place in the canon. Okay, and this is nine years after Lintot and Gildan that Pope comes out with the edition of Shakespeare that mm. just has the plays, uh, but but. This mm. doctor, George Sewell, comes out with the poems of Shakespeare. And mm -hmm. it seems like, it, it, it was he also kind of piggybacking the way Benson piggybacked off the first folio, you know? that Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. It's still that, that notion of them as a kind of supplement where, you know, you could make a certain amount of money by people wanting to just extend that collection with one more volume. And Sewell makes this case that the sonnets can teach you something about Shakespeare's biography which was this, yes this how does he do that first yeah. of all make that case and is this a new idea um it does seem to be the earliest comment i found obviously apart from francis mears in 1598 a kind of early attempt to start to think about why they might be valuable so he makes a comment and it, it, it's slightly tricky because no one talks about the sonnets specifically. They tend to talk about poems or epigrams at this point. So you can't always be clear what an editor or critic is talking about. But he does suggest that in the first flush of one's infatuation for a mistress, one might produce these kinds of poems, which is interesting because, you know, there's a, a long history of not being certain when Shakespeare wrote the sonnets. So he thinks they must be early productions. Benson had kind of suggested they were really late. But he also talks about the notion of, I mean, he doesn't use the phrase rival poet, but the idea that, that the poet Shakespeare's in competition with in these poems is probably Spencer. But unfortunately, he doesn't use a sonnet to kind of back up this argument. He goes back to a passionate pilgrim poem um, called If Music and Sweet Poetry Agree, which actually talks about Spencer. So, you know, there's still this difficulty of making an argument about the sonnets and specifically using sonnets to back it up. Okay, so the Sewell's edition then comes out uh, in, mm -hmm. and it makes it into the 1728 complete works. But then the sonnets just disappear again, and they're not yes. in a whole bunch yes. of editions. They, they come out in, in right. uh, decades, really. 
what, what happened there? Yes. Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, I think one of the, the problems is that they don't get into any of the 18th century anthologies. So like Beauties of English Poetry, that kind of um, William Dodd's collection, because those kinds of anthologists tend to go back to a volume like Pope's or um, Theobald's or somebody's to get these extracts. And obviously the poems aren't there. I mean, Pope had actually put little asterisks or little stars behind bits that he thought would be worth putting in an anthology. So that made the job of those people very easy. So you don't have sonnets in kind of general circulation, you know, as, as part of this kind of poetic culture of English literature. They're just not really there. And, you know, those decisions to keep excluding them from the prestigious works have this kind of knock-on effect. Um, it's really only, I think, when there's a, a more antiquarian interest in Shakespeare. So it's partly to do with library building. You know, Garrick has this famous Shakespeare library of quartos, and Malone starts collecting quartos. Then anyone who has a copy of the 1609 sonnets um, might think that that was worth talking about or publishing. So this is 1766 when um, George Stevens publishes the quarto. Um, and that's part of this collection, 20 of the plays of Shakespeare. So, I mean, it's not even in the title, but it's just, you know, I've got this quarto. If you're a Shakespeare fan, you might think this is interesting. Hmm. Um, so that's the kind of next time they start to come back in. So is this why a lot of people have the misconception that the histories of the sonnets is blank until they were discovered, quote unquote, by Edmund Malone in 1780. Because as you, you know, as you make the case in your book, it's not that they were undiscovered. They'd been discovered a couple of times, but then they would disappear again. Yes. I mean, there does seem to be a problem with the accessibility of the quarto. There obviously aren't many copies that you can find in catalogues or, you know, that they do seem to have been quite hard to get hold of. But Benson and the Passionate Pilgrim, there do seem to have been more copies. There's a, a sense in which Shakespeare's reputation is as a dramatist. And if you introduce poetry, that's just slightly confusing. And, you know, they didn't have any really prestigious champions. You know, one of the points Gary Taylor makes about the creation of Shakespeare's identity is that all these incredibly erudite and respected literary figures are the ones who are doing Shakespeare editing, but they're not the ones who are editing the sonnets. They're giving all their attention to the plays. And it sounds like the, that at the time um, Malone was gathering material for, for his work on the sonnets, that there was just a lot of hand-wringing about whether the sonnets would hurt Shakespeare's reputation in this long process of Shakespeare building. It, explain that for us. Yes, definitely. So, for example, Stevens, who, has, as we said, publishes them in 1766, he may be talking about the apocryphal plays because he publishes some of those as well. But this question of whether one should publish all the works of a great author or whether, you know, one should hide things that might might be thought a disgrace to him. He, there's a bit that I, I think is perhaps worth reading. He says, Life does not often receive good unmixed with evil. The benefits of the art of printing are depraved by the facility with which scandal may be diffused and secrets revealed, and by the temptation by which traffic solicits avarice to betray the weaknesses of passion or the confidence of friendships. 
And he doesn't say he's talking about the sonnets there, but that language does seem to suggest disgrace, betrayal, the weaknesses of passion, that he may be worrying about what he's doing by publishing the sonnets. And what exactly is the scandal? Is this all about just they're not good? <laughs> Nobody thinks they're good? Or, no. <laughs> or because they're too passionate or they're not passionate enough? What? Uh, I mean, it's definitely... Stevens is one of the first people who comes out and says, these are love poems about a man. How disgusting. You know, we should feel disgust and indignation, particularly when he reads Sonnet 20. So there, there are questions of, I think, for him so-called moral depravity. And it's not just a man. They're written to, as as we talked about in the, in the last podcast, mm. they're written to a number of women, not just one woman. Yes. I mean, he's responding to, obviously, that theory that, that the majority of the sonnets are to a man, which obviously, you know, we, we talked about before that Malone discusses. But also, you know, in a sense, he's refreshingly honest because he reads Sonnet 20, you know, which has this phrase, the master mistress of my passion, which talks about how nature has basically added a thing to his love object, has added a penis. And he says, you know, this is clearly a poem about a man and about erotic desire for a man. And no one had really said this so openly before. So, you know, although his attitude is obviously deplorable, at the same time, he is engaging with, he's actually reading the poems carefully, as opposed to... Is it Lintot who called them 154 sonnets, all of them addressed to his mistress, which obviously suggests he hadn't read them at all. Okay, so now we're getting into the scandal part of things. Uh, but but there's another <laughs> example of the sonnets getting no love in 1774 uh, when uh, someone named Francis Gentleman publishes poems mm. written by Shakespeare. What does he think about the poems? Because it seems to be more about the quality of them. And he seems to think the poems are no good. But if they're no good, why is he publishing them? Yeah, I mean, he, he's clearly evidence of this increasing desire to have all of Shakespeare, even the dubious parts of Shakespeare. You know, you might want them to be accessible. So he has scruples about, I think, their, their kind of emotional content he says if Shakespeare's merit as a poet, a philosopher or a man was to be estimated from his poems, though they possess many instances of powerful genius, he would in every point of view sink beneath himself in these characters. So this idea that Shakespeare as a man is not at his best in the sonnets, <laughs> you know, and that might be to do with the fact that he admits to committing adultery, you know, in some of the sonnets. You know, there are sonnets, obviously, 129, the expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lost in action. This is not how you wanted to think about Shakespeare in the 18th century. So No, but it, it sounds like at the beginning of the 1800s, the poets start taking the sonnets more seriously as poetry as opposed to biography yes. of Shakespeare. Yes. I mean, I think, you know, the two go hand in hand to some extent, and particularly with Wordsworth. You know, Wordsworth is one of the key champions of Shakespeare's sonnets and, and is really quite influential. He publishes this essay in a, as a preface to his poems of 1815 in which he defends Shakespeare's sonnets and, and talks about their exquisite sentiments, I think he has felicitously expressed. So he starts to defend their style to suggest that, you know, they have beautiful sentiments in rather than things that, that you might just find embarrassing. And he also picks out, I think it's 27 of his favourites. 
And this list of his favourites actually starts to have some traction. So there's a, an article in Blackwood's magazine, I think it's about three years later, which says, you know, Wordsworth thinks that these Shakespeare sonnets are, are wonderful. So, you know, let's look at them. Let's engage with them. What are some of his favourites? Is this Sonnet 64, which got a lot of attention around this time? Yes, yes, certainly that one. Um, that, that's, and sonnet. that one just remind us, that's when I have seen by times mm. fell hand to face. What, what is it about Sonnet 64 that makes it, it trend in the 1800s? Yes, um, I think obviously it's about a man's life's work to some extent. I mean, that's certainly how Wordsworth interprets it when he borrows from it in the prelude. This idea of having everything you love and everything you've achieved destroyed or washed away by time. That's a very powerful idea, particularly for you know, romantic poetry. You know, it, it uses the word ruin powerfully at the beginning of the line. Ruin hath taught me thus to ruminate. You know, you can think of lots of romantic poems about ruins. You know, Ozymandias, Kubla Khan, The Ruined Cottage. Um, so the, it's kind of chiming with a lot of preoccupations um, that romantic poets particularly have. And also it's quite kind of sentimental, surprisingly sentimental for a Shakespeare sonnet, really, because at the end it talks about weeping. Um, this thought is as a death which cannot choose, but weep to have that which it fears to lose. It kind of chimes with sonnets of sensibility. There's also kind of weeping in um, sonnets at the end of the 18th century. So it, it kind of feeds into that as well, perhaps. And then later, much later, the Oscar Wilde it becomes another champion mm. of the sonnets. Uh, you call him the most mm. notorious Shakespeare lover of the late Victorian period. Yeah, and that it it his his championing uh, championing of Shakespeare in his book, The Portrait of Master W. H represents a decisive moment in the sonnet's queer history. Well, yeah. Tell us about the queer history. Um, I think it's always been there as, as part of the sonnet's reception. You know, We can't trace it right back to its start, but it does seem as though the sonnets have often been a way of men talking about their love for each other. So Tennyson and Arthur Hallam probably engage with each other through quoting the sonnets, you know, the sonnets appearing in memoriam. And Oscar Wilde and Lord Alfred Douglas obviously share the sonnets as a kind of currency. You know, Douglas writes this poem called Two Loves, which borrows from Sonnet 144. So it's kind of partly there. But what's fascinating, I think, is that Oscar Wilde tries to use the sonnets almost as an alibi in his libel trial in 1895. So he cites them in his own defence. But at the same time, this the portrait of Master W.H., this short story that he's written, um, is so kind of homoerotic that, in a sense, he's ruined his own alibi. It becomes incredibly complicated. Hmm. Um, well, where do the sonnets stand now? Are they considered to be definitively the works of Shakespeare? And, and how do you see the echo or the the shadow of these 19th century conversations continuing on as time moves forward. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, part of the argument of the book really is, I suppose, is that we're kind of still stuck in a fairly post-Malonian moment where we think that the quarto is absolutely what Shakespeare's sonnets are and that each of those poems has been authenticated and that there's an argument that Shakespeare ordered the sequence and he wanted them to come out. Um, actually, the 19th century is in a way much more liberal and much freer in reading 
the sonnets and you know there are discussions about whether Shakespeare's maybe writing these sonnets on behalf of somebody else or whether a few of the sonnets might actually not even be by Shakespeare and in a way that's more where our conversations about the sonnets are going now I think because if you look at the dramatic canon every big new edition there's more and more collaboration Obviously, theatre is a collaborative form, but there's more and more willingness to say, well, Shakespeare might have written this part and you know, maybe Middleton did this bit. But that's not an argument that's ever really been applied to the sonnets, in, certainly in the 20th century and tw- early 21st century. But I think there's certainly much more room to be a bit more open and say there could be other sonnets that aren't in the quarto, there could be sonnets in the quarto that aren't by Shakespeare. You know, why are the final two Cupid poems, 153 and 154, so similar. And in the queer community, are Shakespeare's sonnets still upholding this this reputation? Oh, yeah, as far as I'm aware. You know, and I don't think anyone would deny now that Shakespeare was passionately in love with a man. He has an erotic interest in a man or, or several men that, you know, there's really no way of denying that now. And, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about the sonnets is that they've given a voice to, you know, the love that dare not speak its name for so long. I think, you know, a question now is that I was reading something the other day about bisexuality and whether there's a bisexual canon and whether the sonnets could be used to to define that identity. I mean, they're also, I suppose, incredibly gender fluid in the sense that they don't use pronouns quite often. Um, You know, master mistress of my passion is all about gender fluidity. So I maybe you know that's that's the next stage for their evolution. Jane, I have enjoyed talking with you so much and thank you for taking the time. Two episodes of Shakespeare Unlimited. <laughs> it's a record. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me back. Dr. Jane Kingsley Smith is deputy head of the Department of English and Creative Writing at Roehampton University in London. She edited Love's Labour's Lost for the Norton Shakespeare series 3rd edition and The Duchess of Malfi for Penguin in 2015. She is the author of Shakespeare's Drama of Exile, published by Palgrave in 2003, and Cupid in Early Modern Literature and Culture, published by Cambridge University Press in 2010. Her latest book, published in 2019 by Cambridge, is The Afterlife of Shakespeare's Sonnets. Dr. Kingsley Smith was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, Return to the Verses, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Dom Boucher at The Sound Company in London. We hope you're enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited. If you are, and if you're looking for a way to let other people know about it, please leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. That really is the best way to help. Thank you. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.